Well, at this point in the service, we can dismiss the kids, head out. And if you have a Bible with you, or it's still open from when Charles took us there, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. The book of Ephesians chapter 2. As you get there, it's probably a place in your Bible that has a lot of writing in there. Maybe the edges of your Bible are frayed in that place because this is a common, important text for New Testament Christians like ourselves. And we're going to dive into it a little bit more detailed this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to look at the first 10 verses of that chapter. When I decided to ask Patricia to marry me, I realized that I would need a ring of some sort, you know, to sweeten the deal, to push her off the fence, and kind of. Uh, and I realized that I needed a, a diamond ring, a specific type of, a specific piece of jewelry. And I know I look like the type of guy who spends a lot of time in jewelry stores, but the truth is, I actually had never really been in one before that moment. And I remember the, I remember the moment of walking into this jewelry store. And I remember trying to act casual, like I knew what I was doing there and I knew what I was looking for. But the guy behind the counter, uh, he was having none of that. He knew exactly uh, what I was thinking, and he waved me down mercifully, and he said, come over here, and, and he said, what can I help you with? I said, well, I have a question for you, and I explained the situation. He said, I know just the thing, and he brought out from behind the counter a, a single ring with a single diamond on top, and he handed it to me, and again, trying to pretend like I knew what I was looking at, I held it up, and kind of twirled it around, and hummed and hawed, like I was in agreement with what I saw, and I approved of what I was looking at, he wasn't fooled again. Again, he, he reached behind the counter and he brought out this box that was wrapped in black cloth. And he motioned for me to put the ring on top of this black box. Then he handed me a little microscope, a little eyepiece, and he motioned for me to look through at the ring I was about to buy. And when I leaned over and looked through that microscope, wouldn't you know it, that piece of jewelry came alive. You know, against that black backdrop, the, the light just reflected all the way through it. And, and the shape of it was so much more clear. It just popped against that black backdrop. And in much the same way, Christians are often able to better appreciate the gem of their own salvation when it's held up against the blackness of our former damnation. It's not fun to think about necessarily where we've come from, but when we understand the depths of our depravity and the depths of our lostness, and we place the diamond of our salvation atop of that, it can just come alive, and we can appreciate its beauty all the more. As incredible as it, it is to think about, there are times in the Christian life when, for many reasons, the gospel of God's amazing grace can become muted. It can, also, it can almost become almost like an accustomed grace. Those of us who have been in the church a long time, it can almost become normalized, can't it? It's, it's less amazing than, than we want to sing about. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense when we, when we think about the truths we hold so dear as Christians, then we think how we could shrug them away. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but we've all been there, or we all are going to be there, or we all are there right now. And we want to fight against that possible apathy together this morning and in the weeks that follow. In many ways, we've been in the trees over the last number of months as we've dived down deep into Mark's gospel and examined the, the details of discipleship, what it looks like, what it, what it costs, what it is to follow Jesus. And there's beauty in the details, but there's also beauty when we back out and look at the panoramic view of the forest. And we want to do that over the next couple of weeks or the next number of weeks together and, and zoom out and, and get a panoramic view of God's grace. And just be in awe of it together. God's grace. And that's what we're going to do this morning, particularly in Ephesians chapter 2, as we look at God's grace as we celebrate personal salvation and what it means to each of us. 
Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The first three verses of this passage, it's like Paul is reaching behind the counter and laying down the black backdrop on which he's going to put the gem of our salvation. He lays down the black backdrop on which we are going to appreciate the diamond of our salvation. And it's against the darkness of our past that the beauty of God's grace really dazzles. And the darkness begins with, as for you. A good Bible student, like we all are, would say, as for who? Who is he talking to? We go back to the opening verse of the entire letter in chapter 1, verse 1. We find our answer. Paul first introduces himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So we see here that when he says in chapter 2, as for you, he's talking to believers. He's talking to Christians, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And he's reminding them, and us here who have trusted in Christ, he's reminding them of our previous condition, of what we once were. And it's, it's not pretty. It really is a black backdrop that we begin with in this chapter. First, he says that we were dead in sin. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And, and using these synonymous terms, transgressions and sins, what he's really doing is he's emphasizing our role, our intentional role in our rebellion. He's saying you were dead, but not just because of any reason, because you participated in your transgressions and in your sins. You were dead. Yes, what does he mean dead? I mean, clearly they're still acting. You can't mean literally dead. What does he mean by dead? Well, I think we can remember that, or we can think of this best when we think back to what might be one of Jesus' best-known parables, the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. You remember that parable? So Jesus is speaking, and he's telling this story of a man who has two sons, the youngest of which comes to him and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. I know you're still alive, but I want it now. In other words, you're dead to me. Give me my money. I want to go live it up. And we're told in the story that he does that. The father reluctantly but obediently gives the son his inheritance and the son takes off to a far land and blows it on debauched living. The story goes on that the son comes to the end of his money, he's broke, he's destitute, he's hopeless, and he's face down in pig slop and he looks at the pigs and what they're eating, he says, man, that looks good because I am starving. And then he comes to realize, why don't I just go and throw myself at the mercy of my father? At the very least, my dad can 
can give me a place in the servants' quarters. I wouldn't be his son anymore, but at least the, the servants eat better than I am now. So he picks himself up out of the pig pen, and he goes off to his dad. And how does the dad respond? You know the story. He doesn't respond as he could have, as he possibly should have in that cultural climate. He doesn't respond by ostracizing the son or anything like that. How does he respond? Let's find out. In Luke chapter 15, let me read it for you. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 22, and you know this. Jesus says in the parable, But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and now is alive. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. This son of mine was dead. He was gone. He was lost to me. He was estranged from me. And in the same way, that's how we can understand our deadness as Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2. We were spiritually bankrupt, destitute, hopeless, and separated from our Heavenly Father because of our own stupid rebellion. We were dead in sin. But the blackness gets even darker as he continues. Not only were we dead in sin, but Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were enslaved to the world. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the world Paul is talking about here is, is that world system that sets itself opposed to God. It's against God. Everything that it is, is against the Lord. You think of how Jesus talking to his disciples in the upper room, he said, the world is going to hate you because it hated me first. If you were with the world, it would love you, but you're not with the world, you're with me. And so the world, the world system, the world that is set up opposed to God is going to hate you. And Paul is telling the Ephesian believers here that before they trusted Christ, they were in bondage to the world. They were mindlessly following its ways and ultimately they were following the whims of him who ruled it, him who governs this corrupt system. He says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Not only were you enslaved to this world system, but ipso facto, you were enslaved to the one who rules, who governs this world system. And to name names, we're talking about Satan. The ruler of the, of the air is Satan himself. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, we find that. We know, writes John, that we are children of God. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So we see here that, that the enemy, he rules over this, this world system and he uses it and shapes it to oppose God, his enemy. And those who are not in Christ are in the world and they are enslaved to it and its ruler without even knowing that there's an alternative. They're just following along mindlessly, not knowing that there's any other choice. They go along with the world. And and honestly, when we look around our culture today, is this not obvious to believers? As we look around the world today, we read the news, is it not obvious that there is a world system at play that is guiding people mindlessly in this one direction? So many things that we read about today that the world 
promotes and, and celebrates and, and labels as progress is obviously depraved, is obviously nonsensical and destructive and opposed to God. It's obvious to those of us who have eyes. We look at the world and say, what are you thinking? It doesn't make any sense. I don't know if you've ever read the, the fairy tale, Hans Christian Andersen, uh, The Emperor's New Clothes. You ever read that? Where, where these tailors come to town and they say, we can make this magical robe for you. And this vain emperor says, yes, make it for me. They say, oh, but there's a trick here. Only the really smart can see them. So they make him, they bring him basically an empty hanger. And they say, here they are. And he says, yeah, for sure. He, I, he doesn't want to look stupid. So he puts on nothing. And he shows himself off to his kingdom. And no one else wants to admit that they know that they're stupid as well. So they all say, yeah, great clothes. Those look beautiful. When really he's naked. It's this shared delusion. Sometimes I feel like that's what we're living in as a culture. The culture is in this downward spiral toward depravity and believers who have been rescued from this world system look around and say, he's got no clothes on. He's completely naked. And we're all in this shared delusion together. And before we get too hard in the world, Paul wants us to remember that that was us as well before we were saved. And the more we understand that, when we see the depravity of this world and the mindlessness, our reaction should be first pity and empathy and compassion for people who are lost and, and have no other alternative. What was true in the first century is true in the 21st century. What the world system flaunts as liberty and freedom, God says is bondage. But when we see this world around us, as gospel people, we must weep for them, knowing that if not by God's grace, that would still be us. And Paul goes on in chapter 2 and says that because of these realities, us being dead in sin and enslaved to the world, we were deserving of wrath. Verse 3, all of us also lived, and he's including himself here among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. It's, it's unabashed hedonism. Whatever feels good, just do it. And the world is applauding it. Like the rest, he continues, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now some people here say, hey, hang on. That's not my God. My God, my God is a God of love. He would not bring down wrath. My God is not a wrathful God. He's a God of love. And we would say to that person, that's great. But that's not the God of the Bible. I don't know what God you're talking about, but that's not the God of the Bible. Surely, the God of the Bible is love, yes, but he's also justice. He's also just. And a just God must punish wrongdoing, or else he ceases to be just. And the Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of that standard of God's glory, and he must act, or he ceases to be just. And, and in us, part of the image of God in humanity is that we long for justice, don't we? We see atrocities and we say lord thank you that one day there will be justice and we want that and that is great even people who do not know the lord ache for justice and that's a great thing and yet we don't want to turn that around on ourselves and say hang on a second do i deserve justice see god out of his love will one day judge the world those two attributes are not diametrically opposed to one another we were deserving of God's wrath because we missed the mark. We fell short of God's holy standard. And as criminals deserve justice, so sinners deserve wrath. And before finding shelter under the umbrella of Christ, we, like the Ephesians, were standing in the path of the storm of God's just 
wrath. How else can I encourage you today? It's a bleak picture, isn't it, that Paul starts with? It is a bleak picture. We all, like the prodigal son, were face down in pig slop, all of us, with no one to blame but ourselves and deserving of divine punishment. And if you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Christ for your salvation, that's your present condition. I know that is not a PC thing to say. We're all good. There's good inside of all of us. But I'm telling you, out of love, that that is your current position. But stay with me, because there's good news. Paul doesn't leave the Ephesians there, and he doesn't leave us there either. We praise God for verse 4 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. It opens with a merciful but. It almost acts as a... As a it breaks tension for us. You know, there's this building pressure of, of our depraved, debauched resume, saying you were dead, you were enslaved, you were, you were objects of God's wrath, but there's this pressure release valve. And it's almost though Paul reaches now behind the counter and he brings out that diamond ring and he places it atop our bleak past. And he's contrasting here our previous condition with our current position as believers in Christ. And it dazzles against that black backdrop in a way that it wouldn't if we didn't know from whence we've come. And Paul here, almost in rapid fire, lists three positional realities to sum up what every believer shares right now in Christ. And he doesn't linger on them. And he doesn't unpack the theological truths. Those are issues all in themselves that could be sermons forever. He just hits them staccato one after another. And he, he invites us to look at them, to be in awe of them. He says, look at your current position in Christ. In verse 4 and 5, he says, we are alive with Christ. Whereas once we were dead, we've been made alive. Though we were once separated, now we've been brought near. And then he says in verse 6 that we were raised with Christ. We are raised. Well, we will one day be raised physically. That is the hope that we have to look forward to. Right now we are raised spiritually with Christ. And then in verse 6 he goes on to say that we are seated with Christ. Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And where is he seated? Well, if we just backpedal a few verses, we find out that Paul says that Christ was raised by God and seated at his right hand in the heavenlies. The place of highest honor and glory and us as debauched rebels are actually seated with Christ at the right hand of God in heaven. And we have to ask the question, as Paul comes to the end of verse 6, we have to ask the question, how can objects of wrath be seated with Jesus in glory and honor? How is that possible? And really the only way is if someone took our deserved punishment for us. And we find that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The word there is actually a propitiation for our sins. You've heard that word before. It literally means a removal of the wrath of God. The deserved wrath upon sinners was put on Christ. And he sat there for us. And he took it for us. As Christians, we need to grasp the reality that this world is not our home. It's not our home any longer. Peter makes this very clear that we are 
We are foreigners. We are travelers. We are aliens and strangers in this world. We are sojourning here for a while, but our passport is somewhere else now. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, your citizenship is in heaven at the right hand of God in Christ. That's where our citizenship is now. And so when we walk on this earth, we walk in a place that is not our home. We look forward to being in our actual, actual home. And those of us in this room who have immigrated to Canada from somewhere else, we know what that feels like to get that passport and know this is now our home. We are safe here. This is our place. And as Christians, that is our home in a place with Christ at God's right hand. Now again, we, we don't want to lose the contrast that, that Paul is creating here. Remember, he said that we were dead, enslaved, and object of wrath. But now Paul explains that, that we're alive with Christ, raised with Christ, and seated with Christ. We've been transferred from the deepest depths to the highest heights. You say, why would God go to all this trouble? For prodigal sons feeding pigs who, who took an inheritance and squandered it, why would he go to all of this trouble? Paul tells us in verses 4 and 7 of Ephesians 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, did all of these things for us. And in verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Paul says, fueled by his love and his mercy, and his kindness, fueled by those things, God lifted enslaved rebels like us into the heavenly throne room of his Son. Because in the ages to come, it would showcase for the universe his immeasurable grace and kindness. In a completely prideless way, God wants to show off the extent of his character. He says, look at my grace and kindness. Look at my trophies of grace. I've got to think that, that these realities were on Paul's mind when he wrote in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If right now I am alive and resurrected and seated in the heavenlies with Christ, then honestly, who can hurt me? If that is my home right now, if that is where I sit, then what can this world possibly do to me? That's what Paul was thinking, although he was in a lot more trouble than I am right now. And he was saying, who can stop me? Who can hurt me? If that is my position, if I believe that, then what do I care what people think about me? If God has stamped me and said, your passport is with me, what can the world possibly do to touch me? We know this from personal experience, and, and the scriptures warn us that the enemy of our souls wants to remind us of the blackness of our past. Have you ever experienced that, where it creeps up in you again? Remember what you used to do? Remember what you used to be like. Remember you used to do this. Remember you used to do that. Remember how you responded that way? The enemy wants to keep us in the past because it is immobilizing. And it is fear-inducing. It is paralyzing and guilt-inducing. And it's a prison. And he wants us to stay there. He doesn't want us to live in the liberty that we have in our position in Christ right now. And Paul is reminding us of our past here in Ephesians 2, not for that reason, but only to magnify our present position in Christ. And if you're here today and you are struggling with guilt over something that you've done against God in the past, maybe before you were a believer or even since you've become a believer, 
stories. And it just keeps cropping up in your mind. You think, can you forgive that? And the enemy continually brings it up and whispers in your ear. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, it's time to let it go. Let it go. It has been forgiven. If you have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, it included that sin, which is handcuffing you. And by not letting it go, you are essentially saying, Christ, your blood was, was good for all these other sins, but this one that I did, you're just not strong enough for that. You don't know the depths of my sin. Christ says, I know everything. Past, present, and future. I know all of your dirty, rotten laundry. I know it all, and I died for it all. And so if you have trusted Christ, it is time to let that go. It is time to accept the forgiveness that he has extended to you and let it go and live in the liberty that he's offered. There's no more shame. It's been paid for. The enemy loves to have us live in our past, but Paul is saying here, that is not your reality anymore if you're a believer. You are no longer dead. You are no longer enslaved. You are no longer objects of God's wrath. You are free. You are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You are more than conquerors, he says in Romans. You've won it all with Christ. Let's live like it. Free from sin and guilt and shame. It died on that cross. It was buried in that grave. It's pretty obvious. I could talk about this forever. Most of this isn't even in my notes. I, just, I get excited about talking about God's grace because as I read Ephesians 2, I see myself in there. I see myself in the heinousness of the first three verses. And when he says, but God, I just have this relief. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace in saving me. But again, we can't stay here forever. We have to move on. Let's talk, talk about the future. Okay, we talk about the future. We've seen here our past and our present, but now what about our ongoing commission? Right? What are we called to do in light of these realities? I, I was dead, but I'm made alive. Now what? Verses 8 and 9. Many of you probably know these off by heart. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. It's almost like Paul goes out of his way to emphasize the one-sidedness of this transaction. Did you notice that? It's almost redundant, a few of the things he says. You know, it's by grace you've been saved. Okay, we get that through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's a gift from God. By the way, it's not by works so that no one can... It's just this constant barrage of you had nothing to do with this. He's just trying to get that point across. It's almost like he says, if you get nothing else from this, Ephesians, know this, you have been saved by grace. It is a gift of God. This salvation he's describing here in chapter to this transfer from rebellion to throne room, from objects of wrath to trophies of his kindness, mercy, and love is provided by God's grace. It's a gift. And this gift of salvation is unwrapped by each individual by faith, by belief. Not any effort on our part, not adding anything to this. It is simply by faith. Do you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be? Son of God, and, and did what the scriptures claim he did, died on the cross for your sin and rose from the dead. Do you believe that? If so, you're unwrapping this unbelievable gift of salvation. In fact, it makes sense that, that when we try to, quote, help God with our salvation, it really only serves to insult the giver of the gift. It only serves to insult him. Because remember verse 7. So that in the ages, of, ages to come, his glory may be on display for all the world to see. And then we slip in and say, I'm going to add a little bit to it. I'm going I'm to help a little bit. 
were trying to steal glory from his showcase. And he will not share his glory with anyone. Think about that. The person you love most in this world. Some of us have more than one. Praise the Lord for that. Think of, think of one person that you love so much. And you know there's something that they, they would love and that they would need and they would cherish. And you save up for a long time and you buy this gift for them. And you give it to them. And you're so happy to present them with this gift. And then later on that day, they come up to you with a check and say, Hey, I just want to chip in for that gift you gave me. I just want to add a little something to, to help you in the gift that you've given me. It'd be hurtful. It'd be hurtful. It would take away from the generosity of the gift and it, it would communicate an, an unattractive self-righteousness. No, as, as someone being given a gift, our job is to accept that gift. To say thank you for that gift. And then to enjoy that gift. What is better than seeing someone you love enjoy something that you sacrificed to give them? Just enjoying it. That's what God wants from us. He's given us a gift of salvation. He says, accept it, say thank you, and enjoy it. Enjoy it. Don't try to work for it. You can't do it anywhere. It is a gift from God. It's the same for us today. As believers, we need to move forward in the acceptance of this gift. Every day, Lord, I accept this gift of salvation. It's a gift of grace. To live lives marked by, by gratitude and enjoyment of the, of the positional realities that we now have to enjoy because of his gracious provision. I need to abandon all attempts to contribute to my salvation and to, to pay back the gift. That language is foreign to the New Testament. You say, hey, hang on a second, there's still one verse left. There are, there are works involved, aren't there? Verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So did Paul forget what he just wrote one line before? Is he getting confused? You're not saved by works, but you better get working. Right? No. Of course he's not saying that. We need to understand the order here. It's very, very, very important. And many, many, many Christians get this mixed up. And it leads to all sorts of problems. We are saved not by works, but for works. And there's a big difference there. We are saved not by works. He gets all the glory, but we are saved for works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. As Christians, we serve God because we've been liberated by him as an expression of our joy and gratitude. Understanding and experiencing God's forgiveness, it moves me to forgive. When I understand the, the preciousness of the gospel, when I set that diamond atop the blackness and just marvel at its beauty, it motivates me to serve him. It's when we lose sight of the preciousness of the gospel and it becomes normal and it becomes mundane. Then we start to try to earn our salvation. We try to add to it or pay him back. But when we stand in awe of the amazing grace of God, we are filled with humility and passion and, and, and grace and we want to serve him out of thanksgiving and, and we just want to enjoy the gift. If we've been liberated from slavery to the world and, and brought to righteousness in Christ, we want to live in it and serve him with everything we've got. That's what he's talking about here. You've been saved by grace, and on the basis of that gift, you can serve him with absolute freedom. That's the reality of the gospel. That's why Christians work with a smile on our face and joy bubbling up in our soul. Because we know from what we've been saved to what we've been saved and where we now stand. And we say, try to stop me from serving the Lord. Try to stop me from giving back. Try to stop me from sharing the gospel with people. 
because I've been saved by it, I'm convinced by it, I am being saved by it, and I will inherit everything with Christ. You can't stop me. I have not been saved by works. I've got nothing to offer, but I am certainly saved for works. And really, this reality that you wrestle with, this reality is at the, is at the center of Christianity, and, and if it's properly understood, it kills so many issues that plague so many Christians. It kills pride. How can pride exist when I come from this blackness and say, you saved me? How can I be prideful? It kills legalism. How do I demand that anyone live by anything other than grace when I know what I've been saved from by grace? How do I demand anything? It's different to spur one another on to loving good deeds. That's different. But this legalism dies here. Guilt dies here. Shame dies here. We are free. All, they all die here because there's nothing on which they can survive. You've been saved by grace through faith. Live out that joy. Accept that gift. Say thank you and enjoy it to the fullest. If you're here today and you're a Christian, I want you to understand that you've been saved by the grace of God. He saved you from the darkness of that pigsty, hopeless, separated, destitute. He picked you up. He embraced you. He put a ring on your fingers, sandals on your feet. He killed the fattened calf and he seated you with Christ in the heavenlies right now. And nothing can take that away from you. And so as a church, as we marvel at that jewel, it motivates us to serve him with joy. It motivates us to serve him with humble adoration and thanksgiving. It's a beautiful ring and it's one worth buying. Can you say Let's pray together. Bow with me. Oh Lord, we are astonished at the difference between our deservings and our receivings. Between our, our past gracelessness and the position we now find ourselves in. We're astonished at the, the difference between the hell we deserve and the heaven we are now bound for. May the beautiful gem of your gospel of grace never lose its shine in this church family, Father. And may its beauty spur us on to the good works you have set out for us to do. Father, we, may we never become bored with the gospel. May you remind each of us daily of where we once were, not to bring it up so we can live in guilt and shame and regret, but only so that we can Hold up your grace against it and watch it shine. We ask these things in the name of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The music team is going to lead us in a closing song that, of this victorious joy, and it will serve as our benediction and dismissal this morning.